We are, we are at the end of our, our series that we've, we've gone throughout the summer and it's called A Gospel-Shaped Life or The Gospel-Shaped Life. Um, and so we, we just started by looking at what is the gospel. It's a message of joy, a message of hope. Uh, and and the, the, real, the, the crux behind this uh, series has been just to, to point to the fact that the gospel changes everything. And so that our entire lives are transformed and shaped by the gospel. And so we looked at relationships, whether marriage or parenting, or whether church relationships with, with discipleship and discipline. The gospel changes us, and then that shapes how we live with others. And so that's been the, the aim, is showing how we, we are to be a gospel-shaped Christian. And we've looked at the message of, of the mission uh, that, that, that compels us to go outward, whether to the na- nations or to our neighbors. We are, we're ambassadors, and so that's what we looked at the past few weeks. Um, but now, this week, we have two weeks left, and this week what I wanna do is, is that I wanna look at, I wanna draw our attention to a, our, our corporate attention as a local church. I wanna draw our attention to the God-ordained way that we, as a corporate body, witness to the watching world. Specifically, I want us to see how we are called as a church to have a gospel-shaped corporate witness. A gospel-shaped corporate witness. That's what I want us to look at um, today. Now, I know last week with, with, with Scott, Reverend Scott, retired Reverend Chaplain Scott, he talked about evangelism and personal evangelism and the gospel, and, and I pray you're encouraged in your, in your uh, call to share the gospel with, with those who don't know Christ. And, and the reality is we are called to evangelize, to take the message of the gospel to those who don't know. That's what Christians are called to do. However, what I want us to see today is that the primary way that a church, a local church, Fox Road Baptist Church, evangelizes, the primary way that we evangelize as a congregation is not having a fall festival, which by the way we're gonna have, or by going door to door uh, in our neighborhood or by organizing any other type of evangelistic event. That's not the primary way that we evangelize. In fact, if you think that reaching the lost is best accomplished by a church program or event, you've actually missed the point of last week's message. It's not the church's job corporately to evangelize your neighbors. The gospel reaches individuals by the ministry of individuals. The church's most effective and efficient evangelism plan is you, its members. And so if you want our church to be more focused on outreach, you ought to stop and consider what am I doing to reach my neighbors or my coworkers or family members with the gospel? And that's a question we all ought to be asking ourselves as individual Christians. Expecting the church to do what you're called to do is never gonna produce the results you desire. It never does. I mean, the best evangelistic efforts put on by churches are always, they're they're insufficient on the returns of what is put into it. Always. The fact is, most people come to faith through the influence of family members or or small group Bible studies or or just simple conversations with a friend or, or a roommate. Christians are created, are converted, people are converted to Christianity by way of people intentionally talking about the gospel with other people. I mean, that's, that's it. And so the primary way that the church witnesses to the watching world isn't through events or programs. Well, if that's the case, what is the primary way? What's the primary way that the church witnesses to the watching world? Because there is a clear answer, and I want you to recognize that there's a clear answer. 
The reality is if we think that our corporate witness or evangelism primarily is in terms, if we think about it in terms of events or programs, then we misunderstood God's plan for the corporate witness of the church because God has made, made it very clear what the plan for the church is. And so I want us to all be on the same page because the way that God intends for us to witness corporately is a lot simpler than you probably realize and a lot less burdensome on our church. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 13. We're gonna, we're gonna read verses 31 through 38. As we read that, we're gonna, we're gonna find the answer. I'm gonna read verses 31 through 38. Uh, but, but we're going to focus on the answer to our question is going to be in verses 34 and 35, but I'm going to read the whole section here. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31, this is Jesus talking to his disciples near the end um, on the eve of his crucifixion. So, so verse 31, I'm going to begin reading. When he had gone out, that's Judas, Judas has gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, Peter, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray before we look at these verses. Father, what a great reminder that in our zeal we can often be misled. We want to do great things for you. We want to lay down our lives for you. We want to win this community for you. We want to, we want to make a great name for you. But sometimes we just need to rest in the fact that you have laid down your life for us. And so I pray as we, as we look at this, as we look at our call as a church, I pray you'd help us to, to just rejoice in the great love that's been shown to us in the Savior who was crucified for us. And so I'm thankful for this, this word that we have. I pray that you would help us as a church to, to move forward in our witnessing to the watching world. That's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, there's, like I said, we're gonna work through verses 34 and 35, um, and, and I have three points. Let me, let me tell you the three points um, and, and we'll come back to them shortly. But, but the three points is, just going to be verses 34 and 35, um, is first we're going to see the call, and then second, the pattern, and then the result. Okay, so the call, the pattern, and the result. And that's 34 and 35 is what we'll see. And we'll come back to that. But before we get to those, those points on the outline, I just want to do a little bit of background discussion before jumping right into the verses. Because it's important not only to understand what verses 34 and 35 are saying, but also understand the context into which they are spoken. 
Right? So we have to interpret the verses in their own context before we apply them to our current context. Right? So there's just basic Bible reading. We have to, we have to understand the, the, the original context before we can, can pull out these verses and, and apply them to us. And so as we look at this context, we're jumping right in to the Gospel of John, and they take place, the, the, the flow of the Gospel of John, we're at the end of Jesus' earthly life. And so here in verse 31 of John 13, all the way through the end of, of verse 31 of chapter 14, so that section, Jesus is giving his disciples final instructions. He's instructing them on, on their lives after his departure. His departure is imminent. And so all the way up to th- verse 30, Jesus had sent out Judas. So, so in verse 30, right before we start reading, Judas leaves. And so Jesus knew And we know, reading, but Judas left to go do something pretty significant in terms of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so we know when Judas leaves, the betrayer has now departed, and now the the plan is in motion. And so Jesus, now that Judas is gone, it's as if this this new community has been cleansed. So Judas is, is sent away, and now Jesus is ready to give final instructions to the 11. And so in verse 31, when he, that is Jesus, has had gone out, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And so with the departure of Judas, the plane has officially been put in motion. One commentator put it this way, the actual machinery of the arrest, trial, and execution has been set in motion. And in light of that, now Jesus says, is the time for the son of man to be glorified, which is simply to say, Jesus is telling his disciples, the time has come for, for my death on the cross. It's time. I've been with you, but my, my, my time is short. Now is the time. And this death on the cross of Jesus, it, it would be the darkest hour that Jesus would ever face. And Jesus, and John writing here, wants us to know that the darkest hour would also be an hour of glorification. The death on the cross would be the pinnacle of God's glory on display. And so Jesus is preparing his disciples beforehand because what's gonna happen when they see their teacher crucified, hanging on the cross, they they, they can't assume, well, this is just a series of unfortunate events. This is not just a case of, of human free will gone wrong. Instead, Jesus wants them to know beforehand that when they see him crucified on the cross, that that event is an event of glorifying the Son. It is a sovereignly ordained, decreed, predestined crucifixion of the Son of Man that would lead to the salvation of all who would look to him by faith. By which this this glorification, this raising of Christ, this event, this act, is the means by which God would have a people, a specific people, a people for his own possession who were created for his own glory, a, a privilege forfeited through the fall, but now... Now, at the glorification of the Son, realized through union with the crucified, buried, raised, and ascended Lord. That is the glorification that Jesus is talking about, and it's imminent. Now is the time, Jesus says. Yes, an hour of darkness was hastening, but this hour of darkness would reveal the greatest light, the great light of salvation. The salvation that would be accomplished by the self-sacrifice of the Son of Man. Who, who laid down his life, who willingly gave up himself to suffer and die in the place of ruined, helpless, and condemned sinners. And in light of all that, Jesus tells the 11, hey, my time's short. 
I'm not gonna be with you much longer. In fact, just like he had told his Jewish opponents, he also tells his disciples, you can't come where I'm going. At least not yet. But whereas this statement to the Jews was a warning. I'm the way, you better come through me because you can't come any other way. Here it serves as a way to prepare the 11 for what's coming, to tell them beforehand so, so as to, to, to attempt to lessen the shock of loss that's coming to them. And notice when Jesus tells them that, he, he tells them that to be able to tell them that his departure, after his departure, they're not gonna be alone. Right? This, this is the context he says, I'm going away, but I'm gonna send a helper. So don't be afraid. He's also gonna say, hey, I'm going away, but the purpose for my going away is to prepare a place for you. Right? So it's a different purpose for telling them they can't come, but he wants them to know you can't come. I'm leaving and you're gonna be here. And it's after this statement after preparing them for his departure, that he begins to lay out what he expects of them while he, while he is gone, which leads us to verses 34 and 35, our two verses, where he says, verse 34, you can look there again, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And so let's look at the outline. Let's look at the first point. The call this could also be titled a new commandment. Notice what Jesus says. He gives the 11, not just a commandment, but a new commandment. And that new commandment, Jesus says, is to love one another. And that's not hard to interpret that commandment. There aren't various scholarly interpretations on, on what Jesus means here. He means you are to love one another. As, as one, one com commentator noted, this command is simple enough for the toddler to memorize and appreciate. Right? In fact, if you're a parent of a toddler, you should have at least at some point told your children, you should love your siblings. You should love others. Right? That, that is constantly on our lips in our home. It's easy to know and, and, and it's easy to understand. So it's a simple command, but, but notice Jesus doesn't refer to it as a simple command. He doesn't say, hey, a simple commandment I'm giving you. Instead, Jesus says, it's a new commandment. And so on the surface, if you're tracking it, it's a bit puzzling that Jesus would refer to the commandment to love one another as a new command. Do, do you feel that? Like, that, that's a little strange. I mean, just a few months ago in, in our study of the, the Gospel of Matthew through the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in, in chapter five, verse 43, acknowledges that it was commonly accepted saying of the day that loving your neighbor was part of what the law required. He said, you've heard it said you should love your neighbor. Right? He's assuming, you guys know this, it's not new. Now, now he, would, he would push it to say you're to love your enemies, but, but his assumption is that loving your neighbor is understood. I mean, and that, that comes from Leviticus 18, verse 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. From the beginning of, of, of the existence of the people of Israel. Which, by the way, Jesus would say the entire law is summed up with that command and the, the greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says these two, this is the entire law. And so loving others is not new. God's people had always been called to love others. And so we can agree with D.A. Carson when he says that the new command is not new because nothing like it had ever been said before. It had been said before. It had been taught before. So what does Jesus mean when he says the commandment to love one another is a new commandment? Like is the case often with your questions of, of passages in the Bible, the answer is found by, by continuing to read. The context answers the question. Look back at verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I 
have loved you. Do you see it there? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So the newness is the pattern, the example, which is the second point on our outline, the pattern. So you see that the commandment isn't new in the sense that the people of God are called to love one another. It's new because the pattern or the model, the the standard, the example of love that is to be on display is new. It's the pattern that these 11 are, are having set right before their very eyes. And it's the example setting pattern that these disciples are called to emulate. And it's on display, and it's gonna be on full display in a matter of hours when Jesus himself, the one speaking these words, giving this commandment, who says, hey, you're you're to love one another the way I'm loving you, they're gonna see this very one who's speaking these words hanging on a cross willingly. In fact, they're not gonna see it, they're all gonna be running away. But the standard is being set before their very eyes, and and this display of love is what what is new about the commandment that Jesus is giving here to his disciples. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. You see, Jesus is not just another teacher. Jesus is is the son sent to initiate, to institute, to establish a new covenant with God's people. And he does so, the very act by which this new covenant is put into place is his death on the cross. A death that we're told with no level of uncertainty or ambiguity was sourced from a love whose breadths and lengths and heights and depths are unknowable. That's why Jesus dies on the cross, because of his great love. And his great love is put on display on the cross. And so we and the disciples can all with full confidence sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. If you doubt the love of Christ for you, look to the cross. That's how we know the love of God is put on display before our very eyes in the message of the crucifixion and death of Christ. You see, God's love for his people never wavered or faltered or wasn't there. He set his love on his people from eternity past before the foundation of the world. That's that's what Deuteronomy 7 said. That's what the apostle Paul would say. So God's love was set, his affections were were set on his people. But it wasn't until the incarnation, the self-sacrifice of the son that God's great love was clearly perceived. And there's types types and patterns, even the the Exodus is a, a pattern, a type of the great deliverance that was coming in Christ. And it is the self-sacrificial laying down of his life that characterizes the love that Jesus is calling his disciples to. I mean, Jesus would repeat this very command a few chapters later in John 15. When he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 13 of John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And so Jesus provides us with the pattern of love that his followers are called to extend to one another. This is what is new about the commandment to love one another. And a group of Christians loving one another just as Christ has loved them is the way that a church witnesses to the watching world. A congregation of Christians committed to Christ and to Christ's people to one another 
a congregation of Christians sacrificially serving and loving one another is the God-ordained means of corporate evangelism. Look at what Jesus says. Verse 35, the, the result of this love that he's calling his followers to is evidentiary. I don't even know if that's a word. It, it's proof. It, it conveys a certain knowledge. It conveys a clear message. The, the result. And that's what Jesus says the result is. So, so first he, he calls, the call is, hey, love one another. Then second, the pattern, as I've loved you. Third, the result, all people will know. They'll know something. What will they know? Look at verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So what's the by this in verse 35? By what? Well, what is evidence or the source of all people's knowledge that these disciples are followers of Jesus? What is it? It's their love for one another. It's not their love for their opponents. Your love for one another, Jesus says. Do you see that? I mean, it's clear. The love among the family of God sends a clear message to the watching world. It conveys a certain knowledge. That's a result of Christians loving one another. They all outside know inside your followers of Christ. I mean, as I thought about this specific context here in John, I mean, think about up until this point, how would a first century bystander know that these 11 were followers of Jesus? I mean, they would literally follow Jesus, right? They'd walk around. Oh yeah, they're with him. He's the teacher, they're following him. Oh, he's going to Capernaum. Okay, they're going with him. Oh, they're staying at Peter's mother-in-law's house. Okay, he must be there, right? They were in his orbit. They were his disciples, his followers. And that, I assume, was the primary way that people knew that they were his disciples. And so if you fast forward to the night before he's betrayed in this farewell discourse, Jesus is telling them that he's gonna leave them. I'm going away and you're not coming. You can't follow me where I'm going. Which means that their identity and the world's knowledge of their identity, the world's knowledge of their allegiance to Christ was about to take a pretty serious hit. Now, Peter wasn't thinking about this. He couldn't get past the idea that, that Jesus was going somewhere he couldn't. But, but, but consider another one of the disciples trying to reconcile the thought of Jesus being gone. And wondering, well, wait a minute. How are people gonna know that, that we're your people? How are they gonna know to listen to us about what you've taught us? How would the watching world, by the way, who needs Jesus and needs to know his teachings and needs to know the message of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, how would the world know to come to these people for the message and the answer? And this is the answer Jesus gives them. By your love for one another. By this, people will know you're my disciples. By your Christ-like love for one another, the world will know that you're my people. It's that simple. Christian love conveys a message, and that message is that we are followers of Jesus. Now, the logic of these two verses, it's really simple. I mean, I'm talking like two plus two equals four, simple. Nothing confusing or unclear about this. Followers of Christ love others the way that Christ has loved them. And then people know those people are different. Their fellowship, their community, their relationships are different. In this way, Christians loving one another, the gospel is put on display. It makes the gospel visible to the watching world. And it's different, it's different than worldly love. I mean, let's just, let's just recognize we're filled, this world is filled with people who love one another. 
The nature of the love displayed between Christians is supernatural. It's unexplainable. And so it's not as though the love among Christians is one of many. So so Christians love one another the way Republicans love one another. That's not the case. Christians love one another the way football fans love one another from one to four on a Sunday afternoon. It's not like Christians love one another like Star Wars fans love one another. It's not like Christians love one another the way swim team members or, or baseball team members love one another. That's not the type of love that Jesus is talking about. The love displayed among Christians is supernatural. And it's supernatural because it's Christ-like. It's not like the world. The world loves until you don't love back or until you wrong them or until you talk about them or until you say something. You're not, you're, not, you're not far enough this way. You're not far enough that way. The world's love, it, 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 it goes away in an instant. And that's not Christ-like love. The supernatural love to be displayed among Christians conveys a message that is, ought to be unparalleled in our world today. One author put it this way, Christian love is vital to evangelism because it makes the love of Christ visible to the world. The world is watching and must see the transforming power of the gospel on display in our lives. The unbelieving world must see the Holy Spirit enabling Christians to serve one another, encourage one another, endure hardship with one another, refuse to gossip about one another, and speak the truth in love to one another. When the Holy Spirit works among God's people and creates this type of love, the watching world has to take notice. Now, they may, they may see it and hate it and try and put it out, which is what happened in the first century, but they, they can't excuse it because they see it before their very eyes. Christians are united by a gospel with a uniting power unlike any other power in the world. It's beyond comprehension and ought to be inexplicable to the watching world. And the corporate witness of the church in action is when neighbors and friends see the community and fellowship among Christians and are left scratching their heads. I mean, there ought to be examples of this all throughout the life of of any local church. I mean, think think about a neighbor seeing a young family investing time, maybe weekly time, maybe monthly time in the life of a widow, a widow who isn't their grandmother. What's the neighbor gonna say? That that car is always over at your house. How do you know her? She's not my grandmother. Or, Or why would would an elderly couple invest their lives in, in young people who aren't their grandchildren, right? The world has, has tight family bonds most of the time. But what about bonds among age groups that are only otherwise joined in family bonds being joined every day? Why would a group of teenagers give time on a Saturday morning to work in the yard of a low-income single mom? Like, what are you guys getting out of this? What are they paying you? There ought to be displays of supernatural love where the world says, I can't explain that. Examples could be multiplied, but the point is that Christians are called to love one another in a way that it's inexplicable to a watching world, in such a way that people know by seeing this love on display that it is not normal. Unfortunately, churches are often built around and characterized by a love that's totally explainable. Because 
Often the love among Christians in local churches is, are often nothing different than what's seen outside of the church. When there's bickering, fighting, gossip, backbiting, division, anger, disunity, when these things are found as often in the church as out of the church, the message being sent is clear, isn't it? We're one of many. Come here. You all go to the YMCA or go to the hunt club or go to the rotary or go to the, go to the, the community homeowners association, right? When, when things that are characterizing life inside the church are the same as what characterize the groups outside the church, the message is, hey, we're nothing special here. Come if you want, but you don't have to. No life-changing message here. We're just like you. And when this is the case in a local church, it's tragic. And when this is the case in a church, you have a church either A, who's become populated with non-Christians, which is a possibility, just because someone says they're a Christian, love is a good test of that, right? We, in our minds, we have to be okay with the category of someone who says they're a Christian, but may not actually not be a Christian, right? That's a biblical category. There's people who say things that are true of themselves, but are deceptive. And so it's a possibility that, that a church that lacks love for one another may just be filled with non-Christians. That's a possibility, I mean, for John, same author, different book, would say, if you don't love others, you don't know God. And that's not me making that, that convictional statement. That's, that's the scripture saying, if you don't love other people, you probably don't know God. Because if you know God, you love other people. So it could be that you have a church filled with non-Christians, or what I think is more common is you have a church filled with Christians who've forgotten the love of Christ that's been put on display in the gospel. When it's the case in the local church that there's not this, this, this impelling love or compelling love, you probably have a church filled with Christians who've forgotten the love of Christ that's been put on display in the gospel. Because when a body of believers is united around the gospel and loves one another the way that Christ has loved them, the world notices, has no choice but to notice. And so I just wanna, just wanna ask the question, what are we gonna do here? What are we gonna do here at Fox Hill Road Baptist Church? How are we going to cultivate a culture of supernatural love among this body? What are we gonna do? I mean, here's a question. I was gonna save this for the end, but I'll ask this now before I just give some, some suggestions. But to, to our credit, to your credit, often is the case when, when, when we have a visitor, we'll all often follow up with them. And often, I'd say nine times out of 10, we hear from individuals, your church was really welcoming. So first time guests or second time guests or people that are new are at least warm. Now I've, I've heard others say it's not the case. So, so if that's not been the case, I'm, I'm not calling you, I, I, that's true. But most of the time we're welcoming, which is great. And I think that should always, I pray that's always the case. But my question is, what would it take? What would you have to do for every member of this church to leave feeling that way every Sunday. I mean, we see new face, we think, oh, we gotta make them feel welcome. Well, what about the same old face you've seen every Sunday? Do you not care about them being welcomed or loved or cared for? What can we do as a church so that every member is leaving, maybe not happy, but knowing that they're cared for and loved? That's, that's what Jesus is, is, is saying here 
That is the, the, the reality of life within his people, within the local body. That, that's, what he's, that's the picture he's painting. That's what he's calling us to. And so what can we do? I mean, just a few points. I mean, you, you may have ideas that are not even mentioned here and, and go, go with them. One potential application, actually this is a necessary application, is recognizing that as we endeavor to do this, as individuals, we must be characterized by humility. Right? It's not as though I can say, okay, two commandments, love God, love neighbor, I got it, so now I'm good to go love others. The standard of comparison, remember, is the love of Jesus, who laid down his life for his friends. So, so one author puts it this way, the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we recognize the love of the Savior. And the more we recognize the depth of our own sin, the more we rely on the love of Christ that's been shown for us. And so with a standard like this, no thoughtful believer can ever say, I'm perfectly keeping the basic commandment of this new covenant. If you think you're loving others well, you ought to examine your heart. I'm lousy at loving other people. That, that's, that's my heart. I would much rather love myself and be comfortable and not interact with other people. That, that's my disposition. That's my natural bent. It's but by the grace of God that I'm able to, to work against that intentionally. But it, I do so recognizing my tendency. I do so recognizing my weakness and my desperate need which is seen as satisfied in the cross of Christ. So part of the process of growing and maturing as Christians is increasingly recognizing our need for Jesus. This is why we must, we must live gospel-shaped lives. We, we don't move past the gospel in our Christian journey. We go deeper in the gospel, we don't go past it, which is what Lord Willen will talk about next week. But as we recognize our need, our weakness, our, our struggle to love God and others as we ought, we find in the gospel a patient, kind, and merciful savior who loved us and gave himself for us. And he gave himself for us while we were still sinners. Thus, the gospel-shaped life is patient, kind, and merciful with others. Specifically others who have been redeemed by the same blood that's redeemed me. I mean, not to burst your bubble, but you're not in the family because you deserve to be in the family. You're not God's gift to this church in, the, in a sense that, that you have something to offer that no one else has on your own. You're in the family. Jesus loves you because that's who he is. He doesn't love you because you're lovable. I mean, that, that's it, right? We are sick people. That, that, that's our claim to Christ. We need him. The only fitness he requires is to know your need of him. Right? That, that, that's, that's the bare minimum. So we come to Christ because we know we need him and he's patient with us and then we can be patient with others. So we come humbly to Christ and then seek to love others humbly as well. So humility, we also we remember the gospel. I mean, there's a great story in Luke 7, I think it's Luke 7, maybe it's Mark 7, Jesus says to Simon, the tax collector, 
Right? There, there's this sinful woman who comes in and, and barges in on the party and, and pours perfume on Jesus' feet and begins washing with her hair. And, and this, this proud, self-righteous Pharisee says to himself, well, if Jesus knew who that lady was, if he knew her reputation, he would not be okay with what's happening. And Jesus, knowing the thoughts, get that, he knew what he was thinking, says, hey, I got something to tell you. And so he, he t- it's a powerful story, but, but he concludes saying, Simon, you haven't shown love to me since I walked in your door. She can't stop showing love to me since she burst in this door. And the point that Jesus makes is, he who is forgiven little loves little. And so if your love is lacking for one another, you need to be reminded of the debt that's been forgiven you. The gospel must shape our love for one another. When we are lacking love for our brothers and sisters, we're failing to put on display found to proclaim to the watching world that we follow Christ, that we love like he does. And when that's the case, we must remember, we must be reminded as often as is necessary of the great love that's been shown to us by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to remember the gospel. The gospel shapes our love. And when it ceases to shape our love, we need to be reminded of the gospel. That's why we live gospel-shaped lives. We don't move past it. It's not like we come to Christ by recognizing his great love for us and then we move on. No, no, no. We dwell, live, in the love of Christ from beginning to end. The very foundation of our relationship with God is dependent upon the great love that's been shown to us. And so you show the watching world that you don't actually know the love of Christ if you don't love other Christians. that's That's why I say the logic is so simple. When the love of Christ has been shown to a wretched sinner like me or like you, and when a wretched sinner like me or like you experiences the free mercy that flows from the side of Christ, the crucified one, when someone knows and experiences the love of Christ, he or she shows that love to others. And when I'm not showing it, I'm not, I don't know it. It's that simple. And so we remember the gospel, we live gospel-shaped lives, but on a corporate letter, level, how do we build this kind of culture here? Last things I'll say. How do we cultivate a, a culture of Christ-like love? If we, lose the, if we as a church lose the gospel, then we, we've lost the ability to love like this. So, so assuming we keep the gospel, right? maybe you should pray, as you pray for this church, pray that we remain faithful to the gospel, because if we lose the gospel, we actually cease to be a church in any biblical understanding of the church. So assuming we, we continue holding fast to the gospel, what can we do? There's, there's no three-step plan. There's no 12-step plan. There's no, there's no timed plan. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and it takes effort, and it takes God's supernatural work. So all that being said, the foundational level of this type of culture is personal relationships within the body. Personal relationships with other Christians. It must start there. That's where it has to start. This corporate culture has to be formed among the individuals. And we have to be a body of individuals committed to one another. And so how we do this, the, the, the main charge, the main point of application is, is for you to pursue spiritually intentional relationships within this body. Pursue spiritually intentional relationships within this body. Don't just get to know others for the sake of getting to know them. Get to know them for the sake of moving towards them in Christ-like love. Get to know them for the sake of opportunities to die to self and serve them. If you're a member here, you're called, you're commanded to love other members here. And that's a divine command. That's why we want to take church membership seriously is because we're called to love one another. 
Now, we, we could broaden that and say, hey, we just should love other Christians. But I think the New Testament holds forth. There's a group that you know and they know that you're responsible for one another, and we're called to love them. And so if you're a member of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church, you're commanded to love other Christians of Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. And so your point of application would be to begin moving towards others in love. Begin prioritizing relationships within the church family. Begin taking opportunities outside of our regular corporate gatherings to initiate fellowship. You don't have to wait for the church to organize small groups in order to cultivate fellowship with other church members. Did you know that? Maybe you just need to hear that and be freed. You don't need our permission to gather with other Christians. You don't need a formal church structure to carry out this command. You don't need the church to organize a Sunday school class so that you know who you have to love. It may be your Sunday school class, but it's, it's more than your Sunday school class. Your love for Christians within this body must be greater than your Sunday school class. You can move toward any and every other church member on your own. You don't need approval or you don't need an announcement on the slides. Or some of you who've been here a while, you don't need a phone tree. Just start somewhere. If you're not a member of this church, become a member of this church and begin loving one another. If not this church, become a member somewhere because your ability to carry out this command to love one another is, I would say, commanded by Jesus to be carried out in the context of a local church. If not explicitly commanded, it's implicitly commanded that you're loving a certain group of Christians. So start somewhere by, by finding a church. If this isn't the church for you, we, we recognize we're not the only deal in town. There are lots of good gospel-believing churches. So find a place that you can begin moving towards others in love. And so ways to move towards others, pray. We have a church directory, and, and I know it's constantly having to be updated, so you may have an out-of-date one. That's okay. Take the directory and begin praying for the names, the families on that list. If you don't know them, contact one of the pastors. Contact someone who does know people and find out. I mean, if, if you really want to know who someone is, we would give you permission on a, a Sunday during announcements to just say, hey, I'm, I'm wanting to know who this person is so I can pray for them. I mean, I'd give you this, this pulpit to ask that question. I'm that serious about getting to know one another. And so pray for them. Go through, you, use the directory as a prayer guide. I find it's much easier to love people that you're praying for. Ask for specific opportunities to love others. In fact, we have a church member who feels called and has for some time to practically care for some of the older members. This is a, a desire to love, express, put on display a love for older members, specifically those who, who don't have family or loved ones taking care of them. And we as elders are trying to figure out how to equip and enable and unleash this ministry in the church. And so that's one example of, of someone who's, who's praying and feeling like, here's a need and I want, I want to love others in this practical way. And so if you're interested in that, talk to the elders. If there's another idea, come talk to us. We, we want to enable and unleash ministry among the members that, that builds up the body. And so pray, disciple. Begin, intentionally, begin intentional relationships with other Christians seeking to do them spiritual good. Meet with them, pray for them, intentionally get to know them. I mean, if you're an older woman and the, the totally subjective, 50 year older, Totally subjective. If you're over 50, ask yourself, how many ladies under 50 do I know? Not know kind of of them, no details, but, but how, how many younger ladies do I know? 
And if it's not five, work until it's five. And then work until it's 10. And then work until there's none. Older men, same thing. Right? These, these are categories that, that the scriptures give us for discipleship relationships within the body. And you don't need an official church organizational chart to know that an older woman needs to disciple un- younger women, that older men need to invest and pour into younger men. That, that, that's, that's on display in, in the scriptures. And the last thing to do is, is showing hospitality. So discipleship and hospitality. This could be inviting someone into your home. I know a lot of you are un- uneasy with that. Invite them out to, to a meal. It could look like that, and I think it should. I mean, the, the Cornets have been a great example to us all in opening up their home. We need to follow their example. That's hospitality. We ought to do that, and that's included in hospitality, but the idea of hospitality is much broader than that. If your view of hospitality is just inviting others into your home, your view is too narrow, because hospitality literally means welcoming the stranger or loving the stranger, and so hospitality can be as simple as saying hello to someone at church that you don't know. It can be that simple. It can be sending a text or follow-up conversation or follow-up phone call to someone that they don't know really well but you know is in in need or had a specific prayer request that that you knew about and you prayed for. Follow up. It can be anything done with the intention of showing love and care to another Christian. So, So show hospitality. Welcome the stranger, in this case, those that you don't know within this body. And so start somewhere, start somewhere. I, I long, and I, and I think you long as a church to know one another in this sense, to, to be a place that the watching world says, I don't know anything else about that church, but I know that those people love one another. Oh, that that would be the case at 335 Fox Hill Road. Let, let's pray.